You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is here today covering the following three topics. Christ's Ascension and the Preparation for Pentecost. Second, Matthias replaces Judas as Apostle. And third, Pentecost. Tune in at this time when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. And now, here is Dr. George covering Christ's Ascension and the Preparation for Pentecost. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Acts of the Apostles begins much the same way that St. Luke begins his earlier work, which is his Gospel, by addressing a certain Theophilus. Theophilus is a Greek name of a person he writes to. He addresses the Gospel to Theophilus, and then also Acts of the Apostles. And it's providential, because the name Theophilus means beloved of God, or God-lover. It's as if God, knowing that the readers of sacred scripture for centuries to come in opening the Gospel of St. Luke and in opening Acts of the Apostles, knowing that God is addressing themselves, would read the sacred author who would say, in my earlier work, Theophilus, and we hear Theophilus, in my earlier work, beloved one of God, is what he is saying. Now, St. Luke goes on to say, I dealt with, in my earlier work, the Gospel, everything that Jesus had done and taught from the beginning until the day he gave his instructions to the apostles he had chosen through the Holy Spirit and was taken up to heaven. It's as if he references the whole of the Gospel in these opening words of Acts of the Apostles. It's almost like he takes the entire Gospel and places it as a footnote, so to speak, to the opening of Acts of the Apostles. In other words, we will not fully understand what is being revealed in Acts of the Apostles apart from understanding everything that Jesus did and taught in his life, passion, death, and resurrection. It's very beautiful. In other words, we cannot, we cannot understand the mystery of the Church because Acts of the Apostles is about the early life of the Church and the profound reality of the Church, apart from the person of Jesus Christ. We have to know who He is and what the Father revealed in the Son. He goes on to say that Jesus had shown Himself alive to them, to His disciples, to His apostles, after His passion, by many demonstrations, for forty days, St. Luke writes. He had continued to appear to them, and to tell them about the Kingdom of God. Now, this is important for us in understanding the mystery of Christ's Ascension. At the end of his Gospel, what St. Luke says is very similar to what he reminds us of at the beginning of Acts of the Apostles. And it is this, that just before Jesus ascended into Heaven, he told his Apostles once again of the promise he had made of the promise the Father had made in the Son, and that promise is the sending of the Holy Spirit. 
He says at the end of his gospel, and now I am sending upon you what the Father promised. St. Luke says the same thing at the beginning of Acts of the Apostles. Jesus says, stay in the city then, the city of Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, we know that Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after he rose from the dead. Sometimes people tend to think of the mysteries of the resurrection and the ascension as being so much alike that they blend into one mystery. But God is clear in revealing that they are two mysteries. They are two distinct mysteries. Jesus, indeed, was glorified when he rose from the dead. He already was glorified. But that glory of Christ remained veiled under the appearance of an ordinary humanity. In the beautiful condescension of God, in the gentleness of God, after he rose from the dead, Christ came back and spent 40 days on earth with his disciples, encouraging them, reassuring them, enlightening them, speaking to them once again about the mysteries that he had taught them about during his public ministry. We must not forget that Scripture records that when Jesus came back, when he returned, he appeared to the apostles the evening of the resurrection, and he said, Peace be with you, and he breathed on them, and he gave them his spirit. They already had received his spirit, but this was not yet the outpouring of Christ's spirit on the church. But in these days following, in receiving the Spirit, they began to become truly enlightened, even though their understanding and knowledge was as yet imperfect. Christ's body was glorified at the moment of his resurrection. We know this from sacred scripture. We know this from divine revelation. But during those 40 days then, his power and glory remain veiled yet. While he is living among his apostles, his disciples, they can see Jesus, they can touch Jesus. Jesus eats with them. He is speaking a marvelous truth, a mystery, about the resurrection and about the final glory of the body, about God's plan for man after the resurrection of the dead, at the end of time itself. Now, with his ascension, Christ enters definitively, it's a definitive entrance into heaven, an irreversible entrance. Christ will not return again until he comes at the second coming on the day of judgment. So, from the ascension forward, Christ, in his glorified humanity, is seated bodily at the right hand of the Father. This is a tremendous mystery. When Scripture repeatedly speaks of how the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father, this is something that the prophet David, Peter quotes this, quoting the prophet David when he gives his first homily on Pentecost, reminding the Jews of what the prophets had said about the Messiah, that the Lord said to my Lord, the Father said, to the Son, take your seat at my right hand until I have made your enemies 
your footstool. So there was this mysterious idea of sitting at the right hand of the Father, a privilege, a place that belonged only to the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son. So when Scripture speaks of the right hand of the Father, we understand by that the glory and honor of divinity, of the Godhead. And we must remember that Jesus, the Son of God, exists from all eternity with the Father. He is one being with the Father. Christ is God. But now, at the Ascension, He is seated bodily at the right hand of the Father. After God becomes man, God has a body. He becomes incarnate. And in virtue of His resurrection, that flesh is glorified. God is speaking a marvelous mystery about Himself, about the second person of the Trinity, but He is speaking about His plan for us, for His people, who are made in His image and likeness, and about our final destiny. Christ, as head of His body, must precede us. He must go before us. Man cannot go, does not have access to, any place where Christ has not gone ahead of us. So Jesus Christ as head, head of His body, head of His church, precedes us into the Father's glorious kingdom. You remember how Jesus said, it is recorded in the Gospel of St. John, Jesus says to his disciples, And now I am going to prepare a place for you. And after I have gone and prepared a place for you, then I shall return, I shall come back, and take you to myself so that you can be with me where I am. He is speaking about the mystery of the ascension. Only Christ can open to man, as the church tells us, such access that we, his members, might have confidence that we shall go where he, our head and our source, has preceded us. But there is one other aspect to this mystery of the Ascension, it is this. Christ is the High Priest of the heavenly liturgy and therefore of all the liturgies of the Church. And as such, he is the center and the principal actor of all the liturgies that give honor to the Father. And as such, he intercedes ceaselessly for us from where he is at the right hand of the Father in his glorified humanity. Jesus says in his public ministry, And I, when I am lifted up, on the cross shall draw all men to myself. In his being lifted up on the cross, Jesus is speaking about and actually already beginning to reveal to us his being lifted up in the ascension when he ascends into heaven. The lifting up of Jesus on the cross signifies and announces and even already begins his lifting up in the mystery of His Ascension. We know from what Scripture tells us that as the disciples watched Jesus being lifted up, this is Jesus whom they had talked with, felt, touched, 
put their hands into his side, into his wounds. Jesus, with whom they had eaten in these 40 days. They see him being lifted up to heaven on a cloud. Jesus had told them that he would return on a cloud. And the cloud is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The cloud is symbolic of the mystery of God. A cloud, as the church tells us, is both obscure and also luminous. The cloud veils in mystery, while at the same time enlightens and reveals the mystery of God. Christ is lifted up on this cloud, and he will return on that cloud. But he will return, because remember now, once Christ has ascended into heaven, he reigns in his full power and glory. So when he returns on that cloud, when he returns Christ and the Holy Spirit, he will return in the fullness of his majesty, in full power and glory. The whole cosmos will tremble at the coming of Christ in his power and glory at the end of time. After St. Luke speaks of the mystery of the ascension, he immediately goes on to talk about the fact that the apostles with Mary and with other disciples of Christ remain together in the upper room where they pray. Now, from the day after the ascension until the day of Pentecost is nine days. We know that in the mystery that God had revealed to Israel under the Old Covenant, there were marvelous works of God by which he revealed himself to his people and saved them. And in commemoration of the marvelous works of God, and also because God wanted them to remember, he mandated that they celebrate these feasts, that would celebrate the saving actions of God, divine interventions on behalf of his people. Among these feasts, there were certain, there were the most important feasts of all, and among them were two that touch upon these first chapters of Acts of the Apostles. The first is the Feast of Passover, when God had saved his people. He had delivered them from the hand of the enemy. Israel was freed from Egypt. God parted the Red Sea for them and brought them across and eventually into the Promised Land. The Jewish Passover was the most important feast of the Jewish year. Along with that, very close to it in its importance, was the Feast of Pentecost. The word Pentecost is a Greek word which means the 50th day. Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after Passover. Pentecost was a celebration of the first fruits of the grain harvest. And it was a celebration of great joy and great feasting. The apostles, we recall, were Jews. The apostles knew and understood certain things about the feasts, about the signs, the figures, the types, the works of God under the Old Testament. They understood, once Christ had risen from the dead, they understood, they were already beginning to understand at the Last Supper because Christ was speaking of this, that it was no coincidence whatsoever that the Last Supper was instituted and that Christ underwent his passion and death precisely at the time of the Jewish Passover because Christ is the fulfillment 
of the Passover and everything God had done and everything it pointed to and everything it meant for the Jewish people, for Israel. So Jesus fulfills everything in his Passover. The apostles furthermore knew that 50 days after Passover, they had celebrated for many centuries this feast called Pentecost on the 50th day. And that it pointed to the fruits of God's blessings upon his people, his harvest. Jesus, in being with the apostles in those 40 days after his resurrection, concluded by saying, Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city until what the Father has promised is given to you. Now, 40 days have passed. There are nine days left until Pentecost. And what do they do? They gather together with Mary in intense prayer. This is the first novena prayed by the church. The whole idea of novena, an intense time of prayer, novena means nine days, an intense time of prayer for a certain petition, for a certain need of the church, for a new outpouring of the Spirit of God, is something that the church has, has prayed many, many times down through the centuries. And in fact, for a number of years, the church mandated that every parish must pray a novena to the Holy Spirit beginning the day after the ascension until Pentecost. It's not only to commemorate or remember, it is because God reveals that Pentecost is a continual outpouring of His Spirit upon the church. Pentecost doesn't end the morning of Pentecost. It begins the morning of Pentecost. The harvest begins. So there is this continual outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is appropriate that the apostles gather in prayer with Mary. With Mary. Because Mary, Mary in a sense always presides, shall we say, over the birth of Christ over the birth of Christ, of God made man, of his body. And she is mother of the church. We must also not forget that on the cross, Jesus gave the apostles, the disciples, the church, the sons and daughters of God to Mary. To Mary, he entrusted all of us to Mary because Mary, who is the mother of God, is also to be the mother of all of Christ's brothers and sisters. So he gives John to Mary and Mary to John. And so we unite our prayers to Mary because Mary, being immaculately conceived from the beginning of her life throughout her life, her prayer, her life, always cooperated perfectly with God's plan. So we want to unite our prayers to Mary, and she intercedes for us. She prays with us and for us that God's plan might be brought to its fulfillment in us and in his church. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering Matthias replaces Judas as apostle. And now... Back to Dr. George.
Now in this nine days, something interesting happens. Peter, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declares one day to the other disciples that they must elect a twelfth apostle to replace Judas. Because Judas, who had been called by Christ, who was an apostle, abandoned his post. Scripture uses this word. He abandoned his post. He left his tent unoccupied. He deserted his cause. And therein, God's will for him, for his purpose, his call, was not fulfilled as such. What's interesting is that this is the first example of Peter, the chair of Peter, governing the church, organizing, making a decision that affects how the church goes forward. Sometimes people will scratch their heads in bewilderment and say, how is it that the Catholic Church can decide how these things are going to be done when in fact Jesus Christ, when he lived on earth, didn't explicitly say that this could be done. But we have to remember that Jesus entrusts his power and authority to his apostles. They're intelligent and they also are guaranteed the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So that everything they need to know is entrusted to them, the mysteries of Christ. Their job is to carry forward God's plan until Christ comes again. And that means they have to know how to respond to the problems, the situations, the dilemmas, the questions of every day and every age. The decisions they make are always faithful to keeping with the mystery revealed in the person of Christ. It is for this reason that the church constantly combs the scriptures, studies the scriptures, ponders the scriptures, because she knows that God has answered every single question man might pose in his word. He has answered every dilemma, every problem, every question, every issue. The answer is there. We need simply to ponder it and discover what it is, what action we are to take. What Peter knew clearly was how God had formed his people under the Old Testament, how he had taken the 12 sons of Israel to form a people to be his own people. He understood that this was a figure of the church, the formation of the new Israel, and that God, in the Son Christ, had chosen 12 apostles, 12 sons of Israel, to be the foundation stones of his church, the people of God. But one of the 12, one of the 12 had rebelled, had said no. So Peter says we must choose someone to take his place because he understood that it was imperative, according to God's design, that they have 12. He knew, he recalled what God had revealed to Moses, that always the people of God, the leaders of God, must build according to the design given them on the mountain. And that mountain is Christ. Peter and every pope, every pope who is successor, all the apostles, the apostolic church, all the bishops, understand that we must always build according to the design given us on the mountain, given us in the person of Christ. So they, they pray, 
St. Luke tells us, and they draw lots. Now by drawing lots, this is not something superstitious for them or magical. The concept of drawing lots is something that the Jewish people did in the Old Testament. After praying, they would gather some rocks or some sticks. They would have a kind of lottery, not to choose at random the answer to their question. They understood that God had already chosen. God already had decided what the answer was. It was merely for them to let God show them what that answer was. So by drawing lots, they believed and understood that God was simply revealing who his choice was. And in this case, it was Matthias. Now, in looking at this, we have to ask ourselves, is it possible then for man to prevent God's will from being fulfilled? Because it seems that Judas prevented Christ's will from being fulfilled in his choice of the Twelve. To answer this, we must begin by saying two important things. In the first place, God's will is immutable because God is immutable. He is, he is unchanging. God cannot change his mind. His will is one. He is the unchangeable one. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As King David says, our God is in the heavens. Whatever he wills is done. God also says under the Old Testament, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purposes of the Lord which shall be established. God created the heavens and the earth. That's language which says God created everything. Therefore, as its author, as its Lord, he governs all things. God has absolute sovereignty over the course of events. He is Lord of history, Lord of the universe, and all things will be done according to his will. Everything is laid bare to the eyes of God. Even those things which have not yet come into existence through the free will of God's creatures. That's an amazing thing. Secondly, therefore, we, being created in God's image and likeness, have free will. We have the freedom to choose. We can initiate actions and control our own actions. God gives us free will in making us like himself, and he is the one who guarantees that free will. He allows us even to reject him, our creator, our redeemer, our sanctifier. That's the kind of power we have in our free will. We are, in a certain sense, the father then of our own actions. We have the capacity, the freedom, to shape our own lives, to determine the path that our life will take. This means, then, that while no one can change God's will or prevent his will from being fulfilled, we can prevent God's will from being fulfilled in us through our free will. Judas does this. That is not to say, however, that we know Judas's eternal destiny. We don't know if he is in hell, in purgatory, or in heaven. We don't know 
every movement of his heart, every decision until the last breath he took. We don't know this. There is something very beautiful in the fact that in giving us free will, God always is giving us the grace. First of all, he gives us conscience to hear his voice, but he is also giving us the grace to turn back to him. We can turn back over and over again. In other words, we can either remain in our rebellion and let that come to its final conclusion, or we can change our mind and go back and do what we were supposed to do in the first place, what God wanted of us. This is why God says through the prophet Isaiah, Seek out Yahweh while he is still to be found. Call on him while he is still near. In other words, while you have the opportunity, seek him, call upon him. Let the wicked man turn back to Yahweh who will take pity on him. God says this in the Old Testament. God will always take pity on us. Jesus is the revelation of the mercy of the Father and the forgiveness of sins. And this mercy and forgiveness is a permanent offering and it remains with us. It's a pledge. It's our hope so long as we live on earth. It is always there for us if we turn back to it. We recall the story of, of Saul and his struggles and how he would rebel against God's will and then he would lose the kingdom and Samuel, as God's prophet, would go and tell Saul that he was displeasing to God. He would say, God says to tell you, I regret having made Saul king since he has broken his allegiance to me and not carried out my orders. And then Saul would have, he would weep and grieve and have deep remorse over this. And he would later change his mind. Every time Saul changed his mind, God would take him back. He would reestablish him in his good pleasure. But what happens is that as many times as Saul rebels and turns back, he still clings to the sin in his heart. He does not repent or die to himself so that eventually he loses that kingdom. He loses the kingdom because he gets to a point where he rebels against God and the kingdom of Israel is taken from him, as Samuel tells Saul. He says, Today Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you, Samuel says to Saul, and given it to a neighbor who is better than you. Now this is fulfilled in a certain way in the mystery of what happens with Judas and how the kingdom of Israel, of the new Israel, is taken from him. Not taken from him. He separates himself from that. That is why Samuel later says, the glory of Israel, however, he is speaking of God, does not lie or go back on his word, not being human or liable to go back on his word. God cannot change his mind. We can rebel against God and we can remain resolute, firm, unchanging in that rebellion. That's where the problem lies. We all have things in our lives, moments in our lives, when we know that we have somehow not been faithful in following God's will for us. And maybe it was even something that would have changed the course of our lives, a job that we might have taken, a missionary work we might have done. And in turning back to God, we ask, can we have that back? 
Now there's a way in which we often cannot have back exactly that particular thing which we already have rejected and time has passed, things have changed, things have gone on. And God will not give us back exactly that same thing. But that doesn't matter. We have to understand that we cannot live under the burden of remorse and regret as if it is outside the providence of God to bring about His will in us. God can always do this. He will give us something new, and not only something new and different, something better. God always gives more. This is why St. Paul says, All things come to good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. This is why St. John says, We shall reassure our hearts before Him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and He knows all things. God can always, will always, give back to us, restore us to those blessings, give them back to us, although He may do so in a different way. But it will always be a better way. That's why St. John says we must reassure our hearts before Him. The Church tells us faith gives us the certainty that God would not permit an evil if He did not cause a good to come from that very evil by ways that we shall fully know only in eternal life. That's the mystery of our life on earth. As long as we turn back to God, He immediately takes, He actually takes the disappointments and failures of our life. He takes what we sometimes call the garbage of our life. He turns that to good. God is almighty. He is all-powerful. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will cover Pentecost. And now, back to Dr. George. On the morning of Pentecost, the apostles are gathered in the upper room with Mary in prayer, and they are in the same little house, the same cenacle, as we call it, the same upper room, where they were with Jesus, where the apostles were with Jesus at the institution of the Last Supper. It is the same upper room where the apostles had gathered behind closed doors for fear of the Jews on the evening of the resurrection when Christ virtually passes through the wall and tells them, peace be with you, and he breathes on them and gives them his spirit. Now they are gathered together in this upper room of this little house in the city of Jerusalem. It is Pentecost, the great feast of Pentecost. And as was the case, just as what happened always at the eight-day feast of Passover, people, Jews and proselytes alike, would come from near and far into the city. Now, St. Luke mentions proselytes because they were Gentiles, they were pagan or Gentile converts who had converted to Judaism. When Scripture speaks of the Jews, usually what is meant by that are people of the Jewish race. They are Jews by descendancy. But there were converts to Judaism, whom are called proselytes, and they were circumcised, they accepted circumcision, and they also practiced the prescriptions of the Mosaic Law. Now, there were many, and even beyond this, there were what are called devout men, God-fearing men. St. Luke will speak of these later in reference to, to Cornelius, 
pagans who were God-fearing, who believed in a supreme being, a supreme God, and who believed that man must live a virtuous life, a life of integrity. They had a sort of natural fear of God, a kind of reverence for God and an acknowledgement of God. At the time of the great Jewish feasts, the Jews from throughout the countryside, along with the proselytes, and sometimes the God-fearers would come into the city for the great celebrations. It was actually expected for all the Jews to make pilgrimage at the time of the great festivals, anyone who could. Obviously, sometimes illness or certain other things might prevent them, but anyone who was able to was expected to make pilgrimage. The city of Jerusalem was thronging, was pulsing with people at these times. Now, God is bringing mankind, he is drawing mankind to himself. There is this mysterious, this mysterious thing going on with regard to the fulfillment of the Jewish feast. At the time of Christ's Passover, his death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because God had promised many times through the prophets that he would gather all nations to himself. And this gathering actually is foreshadowed first in the calamity or the curse that is the result of the Tower of Babel. Man, of course, had sinned. Man had fallen. And concupiscent man in his pride, in his self-absorption, in his self-reliance, in his vanity, decided that he would form his own unity, that he would build a great tower so that, as scripture says, his name could be great. Man wanted to make his name great. Man wanted to do something by himself and for himself. He was going to bring the peoples of God together, the peoples of the world. And God looked down upon this and said, No, because of this, they shall be scattered. They shall be divided into many different languages. And one will not be able to understand what the other is saying. So from the very beginning, really, in salvation history, there is this disunity and division among God's people, which he had willed to be in communion with each other and him from the beginning of time. The unity of the human race is God's will from the creation of the world. Therefore, his will is going to be fulfilled. And this is what, in an eminent kind of way, he is bringing about on Pentecost. He gathers the nations. And it's no accident that St. Luke records that they had come from, from far in the north, south, east, and west. If we look at the different nations that he enumerates at the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts of the Apostles, those nations comprised really the far-reaching inhabited world in all directions. This is what he is speaking about. It is God who had brought them into the holy city. So they are in the holy city, but it is only over the little house where the Holy Spirit descends. And St. Luke says that when Pentecost Day came round, they had all met together, and suddenly, this is over the little house, there came from heaven a sound as of a violent wind, 
which filled the entire house in which they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire. These separated and came to rest on the head of each of them. This is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And fire, of course, is symbolic of God. Fire and wind and cloud and light, these are all kinds of theophanies, manifestations of God's power. And so we have fire, and as the church fathers point out, when St. Luke says that the fire came down and then separated on the heads of each of them, God is saying that that fire has one source. It comes down as one, from one, from heaven, and it separates on each of them. There is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Also, a fire is symbolic of the transforming energy of the Spirit. Whatever the fire of the Holy Spirit touches, it purifies, it changes, it transforms. So this fire comes down on them, and they all began to speak in different languages. And then he goes on to talk about the devout men living in Jerusalem who had gathered from all over. They all began to assemble. The sound, the loud sound of that wind must have been something to gather these people from all over the city of Jerusalem, which is a very large city. And they all came to one and the same place. They knew where it was happening. Once God gathers the nations, then the apostles begin speaking, and they're amazed because they say, aren't these men Galileans? Because they would have spoken their own language. They don't know the languages of all these other far-reaching nations and cultures. And they said, and yet, each of us understands them in his own language, in his own tongue. God now has reversed the curse of Babel. He has gathered the nations who were before scattered and divided, and now he is unifying them and he is giving them the capacity to hear and understand, to know and understand the one truth. What the apostles are proclaiming is Jesus Christ. They are proclaiming the gospel. They are proclaiming the profound mystery of God made man. So the mystery is already going out to the ends of the earth. Jesus had told his apostles earlier that once they received the Spirit, he said, then you will be my witnesses. This is verse 8 of chapter 1. You will receive the Holy Spirit, which will come on you. Then you will be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but throughout Judea and Samaria, and even to the end of the world, even to the earth's remotest ends. So they are hearing this. It is miraculous that they can understand. This miracle points to the grace given to the church from this day on to proclaim the mystery of Christ to every culture, every nation, every race, every age, until the end of time, and do so in a way which every single people can understand. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that knowledge and understanding is given. So something very amazing happens at Pentecost. If we understand Pentecost and study this, we will understand that there are two things revealed in this mystery. It's very apparent by what Scripture says. And the first is this that the gift of the Holy Spirit ushers in a new age, in a new dispensation, and that is the age of the church. 
the church speaks of a dispensation. There is a dispensing, a pouring out, a distribution of grace, of that which Christ wrought, merited on our behalf. From this day forward, Christ manifests, makes present, and also communicates his work of salvation through the liturgy of the church until he comes again. Christ wrought salvation for man. The order of redemption is completed virtually with Christ's ascension into heaven. But now we enter the age of the church. We know that the church is born from the pure side of Christ as he hangs on the cross. The church says, from the blood and water that poured forth from the side of Christ. The church is born from the side of Christ and the cross, but the church also has always spoken of the birth of the church on Pentecost. This is because the birth of the church is manifested to the whole world. The church is announced to the whole world. The church begins her missionary work. The church receives the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that she can be what she is as church, do what she does as church. So Christ now manifests by pouring out his spirit. There is a way in which he pours out his spirit. He gives his spirit in his own person. There is a way in which we say that the Father sends the spirit in the name of the Son. But we shouldn't be perplexed by this because the Father and the Son are one. And Christ always does what the Father does. So Christ pours out his spirit on the church. This means that he manifests, he makes known, he makes present the actual reality of the mysteries of salvation. He makes them present on earth in the sacramental liturgies and he communicates, he communicates his work of salvation. He dispenses it to us. The grace, that life, what are the sacraments of the church? If we speak of the sacraments, they are efficacious signs. We still have, God still works through signs. He speaks to us through things that we can understand. An example would be the heavens. God speaks about gazing upward, looking upward. Christ ascends into heaven on a cloud. But when we speak of God living in heaven, God doesn't live in a place or a space. Heaven is a way of being. It is a state. When we think of the highest heavens in our humanity, we tend to think that God is somehow distant from us. God is not distant. He is majestic, transcending everything. But he uses the idea of the heavens to help us understand. He says through the prophet Isaiah, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. We can understand that because we look into the heavens and, and we see no boundary. We see no limit. We look at how distant the stars are and God is the creator of the stars. So it's these kinds of signs. Even in the sacraments of the church, we have signs. And they're signs by which we can understand the mystery. Signs of bread, of wine, words, water, oil, or chrism. So these are signs, but they are not simply created signs. Yes, they are created things, but they are efficacious. They are supremely efficacious signs 
They are instituted by Christ. He has chosen them. He has set them in place and entrusted them to his church so that the sacraments now are efficacious signs by which divine life is dispensed to us. Divine life, it's the dispensation. Divine life is poured out upon us, dispensed to us through the sacramental life of the church. If we don't understand this, then we don't have a true hunger for the sacraments of the church. The necessity of the sacrament of baptism and the other two sacraments of initiation, which are confirmation and the Eucharist. Every person who is confirmed receives an outpouring of the Spirit that is one and the same as the outpouring of the Spirit the apostles received on Pentecost. The same, one and the same. We have the sacraments of healing, which are penance or confession and the anointing of the sick. And we have the two sacraments which are at the service of communion, holy orders and matrimony. So the sacraments of the church. Secondly, we understand the church's Catholicity. One of the marks of the church is that she is Catholic. She is one holy Catholic and apostolic. The word Catholic now has become a proper noun for the church. We capitalize the word Catholic, but it's a predicate adjective. The church is Catholic. It's a type of adjective, and it was used in the earliest days of the church. The word Catholic means universal, and universal means the totality according to the totality, in keeping with the whole. So the church was Catholic from the very beginning. Now, Catholic has a double sense to it. There are two ways in which, in which the church speaks of herself as Catholic. The very first is this. The church is Catholic because Christ is present in her. Saint Ignatius of Antioch, who was born about, probably just a few years after the death of Christ, so he was born sometime in the 30s AD. He became a bishop of the church. He's one of the church fathers. We have many great writings from him. He died just after the turn of the first century. He said, wherever Christ Jesus is, there is the Catholic Church. This is even before the end of the first century. Already, the apostolic church, the apostles and their successors were speaking of the church as Catholic. Why Catholic? Because in her subsists, the church says, subsists, exists, continues to be the fullness of Christ's body in union with its head. This means that, this implies that the church receives from Christ the fullness of the means of salvation that he has willed. And of course this includes the correct and complete confession of faith, the full sacramental life, and ordained ministry in apostolic succession. The church was Catholic on the day of Pentecost. In these very senses of which we speak, the church was Catholic on the day of Pentecost, and she will be so until the parousia, until the end of time. The church is Catholic in her identity. Secondly, she is Catholic because she is missionary. Because Christ has sent her out on mission, she is the one sent on mission to the whole human race, so that all may know salvation. It is this which Peter is doing in his address to the crowd on Pentecost, the morning of Pentecost. 
when he proclaims to them something that biblical commentators will call the kerygma. It's a Greek word meaning proclamation or announcement or preaching. It's sort of the core content of the mystery of our salvation. And in the kerygma, and Peter proclaims it here, we will see it in other cases in Acts of the Apostles. St. Luke records it of several times of Paul, of James, and so on. In this kerygma, we have reference always to what God spoke in the past, what God had said, because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what God promised, what God revealed. So there's always this quoting of the Hebrew scriptures and how now these words are fulfilled in the person of Christ. So Peter is proclaiming Christ as our salvation. After quoting the prophet Joel, by which God had said, in the days to come, in the last days, we have entered the, the last days, from the point of Christ's ascension on, we now live in the very last days of the age, the very last days of time, as Christ reveals and as divine revelation continues to tell us. God says, I shall pour out my spirit on all humanity. This is fulfilled at Pentecost and continues to be fulfilled until the end of time. He then goes on to quote David in the Psalms. He actually quotes David in several places. One is that they knew that God had said concerning his Messiah that his anointed one would not undergo corruption. He would not be abandoned to Hades, never to rise again. They couldn't understand fully what this meant. They knew that it pointed to some mysterious life after death. But Peter tells them, in quoting David, that David, the prophet David, knew God had sworn him an oath to make one of his descendants succeed him on the throne, and that son is Christ. He spoke with foreknowledge about the resurrection of Christ. He said God was already revealing this in David. He is the one who is not abandoned to Hades, Peter declares of Jesus Christ, and whose body did not see corruption. God raised this man, Jesus, to life, and of this we are all witnesses. That's a critical component of the kerygma, a critical component of the early church, that we have the witness to Jesus' resurrection on the part of the apostles. No one saw him actually rise from the tomb. But that witness is based upon the 40 days that Jesus, who had died and risen, that they witnessed in him when he ate with them and spoke with them, and they were able to touch him in his person. So they are witness to this. He says, and now, raised to the heights of God's right hand, he has received from the Father the Holy Spirit who is promised. And what you see and hear is this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say this, Jesus, whom you crucified, is Lord and Christ, the one of whom God had spoken down through the centuries, the one whom we had awaited. St. Luke tells us that in hearing these words, they were cut to the heart. It's as if the words of the prophet Jeremiah are being fulfilled when God says you must circumcise your heart. They are cut to the heart. They are struck because, because of the Holy Spirit, they have received sufficient enough understanding of the mystery to know that they crucified their Savior, the Son of God. And they say, 
What are we to do, brothers? And Peter says, he declares what the church declares to the end of the age. Repent. He says, you must repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. They come to a point which is not unlike where Peter came to in his realization that he had betrayed Christ. He must have thought, what am I to do? What am I to do? Judas was in that same position. What am I to do? That's the action of the Holy Spirit, speaking in our conscience. What we do, we must remember what God has said. Our pledge is God's mercy, the promise of the forgiveness of sins. And in remembering that, we humble ourselves and we turn back, as God said, He will take pity on us. So this is what Peter proclaims to them. They recognize the one whom they have pierced in fulfillment of what St. John says. They will look upon the one whom they have pierced. That is in fulfillment of the words of the prophet Zechariah. When he says, God speaking through Zechariah, they will look on the one whom they have pierced and they will weep. And they will weep. But that weeping, those tears, are the water of the Holy Spirit. Recognizing that, recognizing the lack of love we have had for our Lord. And it's the Spirit calling us. He wants to cleanse our hearts. Take away the heart of stone, as the prophet Ezekiel says, and give us a heart of flesh. In responding, in saying yes, and accepting salvation, which is what they do, 3,000 of them were baptized that day, the church grows. This is what God has asked. The church is fulfilling her role. And until the end of time, God will continue to fulfill this. The world now has between six and seven billion people, and fully one-third of those people are Christians. And they have come to Christ, come to know Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel by the missionary church. So the church continues to do this. Pentecost continues. These are the fruits of God's harvest. They are the fruits of the heavenly harvest. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue Acts of the Apostles. She will be covering chapter 3 through chapter 5, verse 11, which include the following three topics. The name of Jesus, second, faith and miracles, and third, life in the Christian community. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. Thank you.